Welcome to Michael and Us. I'm Will Sloan here as always with Luke Savage. Welcome back, everyone. I don't think you can hear it now, but the the Freedom Marchers or whatever, they just walked <laughs> past Luke's apartment. Uh, th- these are the anti-mask people who do a parade every weekend. I think it was, I think there were 50 of them out there, you know, holding their Canadian flags and whatever. And what's funny is we actually don't have any restrictions anymore in Toronto. They've kept going after, there's no, like, I, I'm never sure what to call them because, you know, for a while, you know, I was calling them the anti-vaxxers because like that was the thing that was animating them. You know, it was like, don't don't get the vaccines. Then it became, you know, anti-mandate stuff. Like mandates were kind of ostensibly what was behind the Freedom Convoy in, in Ottawa and, and around the country earlier this year. And then now, yeah, I mean, what do you even call them? What are they protesting? The mandates are gone. People are wearing masks, but you're not legally required to wear masks anymore, except I think on the subway and maybe like, you know, if you go into a hospital, you have to wear one. But there really aren't many settings where anybody's going to force you to wear a mask. I think they're protesting having to see the masks. <laughs> they're protesting the the ethos of people wearing masks. Yeah. Well, I, I, you know, I do think one possible explanation for this, and this came to mind as well for me a few weeks ago when I was watching where the cops moved in and evicted them from downtown Ottawa. You know, I spent this weekend where I was just glued to all these like right wing streams where they were like, you know, in the in the protest as the cops were moving in. And what was so clear, and I think I talked about this on a Patreon episode a while ago, what was so clear about this is like one of the needs this is, you know, fulfilling for, for these people, quite apart from any of the, you know, political demands they ostensibly have is just like community (laughs) like this march has been going by my apartment or some version of it for like the better part of two years now right and you know it's gotten bigger it's gotten smaller it got bigger again the size of it has actually kind of defied expectations like sometimes when there's been a loosening of restrictions you think well surely that's gonna kind of dilute the you know fervor of this a little bit and then like it doesn't at all but you see it enough times and you start to you know you recognize the characters you recognize the signs like there's the the guy with the trump one flag, you know, there's an InfoWars guy, you know, there's a whole bunch of stuff. Incidentally, especially funny for downtown Toronto, there's a, there's also a guy that has like a Let's Go Brandon one, which I like. Um, we are in Canada, folks. Don't know if you know that. But, you know, you start to recognize the signs and you realize like, okay, so this is like the same people and like this is their Saturday like field trip. This is their little outing and this is them getting to hang out with their friends. I guess it's possible to feel more positively about it when you frame it that way. <laughs> I didn't mean it in a positive light. I just meant how do you... I mean, in trying to explain or account for there are very minimal restrictions, why the hell are these people still out there? I mean, I think partly what you just said is right. And like they're protesting the fact that they have to see masks and like the fact that there's kind of any restrictions at all or that there's kind of still they're being reminded of COVID. I think there's also a triggering the libs kind of element. You know, they like to walk down the street and just annoy people and honk and be disruptive. But I think this community explanation really is part of the story as well. It's like they've been doing this for two years and who knows, maybe they'll do it for two more years. So just off the top on another subject, I want to riff a little bit on something I saw on Twitter, which is where I get all my news. But Vulture, the beloved media organization, is is giving its Twitter account this week over to discussion of erotic thrillers. This has been sparked by the new Ben Affleck movie, Deep Water, which is a uh, sort of return to the erotic thriller genre, which once 
ruled cinema screens 20 years ago. You know, Sir, what's an example of like from this golden age of erotic thrillers 20 years ago? What's like an example of a film like that? Like Basic Instinct is is a quintessential erotic thriller. And this one is by Adrian Lyne, who's one of the masters of the form. He directed Fatal Attraction, Indecent Proposal, Nine and a Half Weeks, Unfaithful. And this is the new movie. But anyway, I'm not here to talk about Deep Water, which I watched and it's perfectly mediocre. They gave over their Twitter account to their film critic, who sort of considers themselves an expert in erotic thrillers. And as part of a tweet thread, they wrote, basically, only absolute perverts like myself should be writing about erotic thrillers. I can tell that too many critics out there don't know how to fuck. Uh, First of all, I'm sure that's true. But secondly, something about that tweet really rubs me the wrong way, because I actually think this person is stealing pervert valor. You can't just go out there and say, well, I can write about erotic thrillers because because I I know I know how to have sex. It sounds like very typical sort of like media gatekeeping, but just about something that like you wouldn't normally think somebody would want to gatekeep around. It's like, this is my beat and you you people can't step into this. This is my beat because um, I have sex. Unlike you, I've, I've seen basic instinct. I've, I, I've, I've done sex. I know multiple of the positions. <laughs> I've had more than one partner. And I just want to hear if you're identifying yourself as an absolute pervert, I actually want to hear like, what are the perversions? I want a list. Give me a list of the perversions because I think many of the non-sex having film critics that they identify are probably just as perverted deep down so sorry this is like a person whose thing is like i'm a pervert and then the evidence is like they like like mainstream like movies that are in cinemas that people go see yeah movies like deep water which has like one (laughs) has been has one scene of nudity And also, they presumably, they, they know how to do the sex. I mean, <laughs> so, so that's this the is, other this thing. Is just like a that. thing that, that nobody has ever done. It's an elite skill, having sex. <laughs> this is just like that thing from sort of 10 years ago where, you know, when sort of, you know, I don't know, whatever what you want to call it, like nerd culture, broadly speaking, went mainstream and just, we're just living in, you know, that's the whole of culture. And, you know, people would be like, yeah, I'm a little bit, you know, I'm a little bit strange. I'm a little bit out there. I'm a little bit, you know, I'm into kind of fringe stuff. You know, I like The Walking Dead and, and you know, the Dark Knight. I'm really into that. I also think just sex nerd behavior in general, uh, sex nerd rhetoric, uh, being <laughs> I'm I'm into sex. I think that needs to be outlawed. This is where this is where my my belief in free speech reaches its its limit. Uh, I don't think this is a subject that anyone should claim any special ownership over. When I saw you yesterday, somehow, uh, somehow the subject of the Parkland teens came up, and you were like, "What, what, what, what happened with them? What's going on with uh, with David Hogg?" And it just so happened I raised this because for a couple of years, like before Greta Thunberg, Parkland teens were every boomer's favorite example of how the kids are all right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, now now it's moved over. Now it's like always like K-pop stands on TikTok are going to defeat fascism or something. But anyway, some of this came up, and it just so happened, you know, I hadn't thought about uh, David Hogg for a while. But he had this tweet that I I thought was interesting because it's kind of just emblematic of something that we've talked about on the show before, um, where he wrote, liberals need to do what the Republican Party did in the 1950s and 1960s and build an entire parallel infrastructure to the party of, and then he has a list and he says, 
Legislative action, ALEC, media control, Fox News, okay, not created in the 1950s and 60s, just to be a little pedantic about it, but I, but I understand the spirit of the point. Legal, the Federalist Society, heavy investment in local and state races. Now, what I love about this is that, you know, it's presented as some kind of original observation, and you know, whatever, I'm not like going to be you know, beating up, I'm not picking on David Hogg here, he's hardly the... I think he seems like a good man, but whatever. <laughs> he's hardly, he's hardly the... I think his heart is in the right Yeah, he's, but he's hardly the first person to like make, I mean, everybody makes this argument. Argument. I mean, there's a million versions of this argument, and I feel like I've been hearing them for 25 years. Well, like it's, it's, during the during the Bush era, it was like, why don't we have our own, you know, Death Star? Like, why don't we have Fox News? Rush Limbaugh was like the perfect example. Everyone used to say, "Oh, how come how come we can't get a liberal on the airwaves?" There were so many truckers out there who were just listening to this guy for hours a day. Yeah, but what if they were listening to Al Franken instead? Yeah, and and so this is the thing. It's like <laughs> this public domain observation that well why don't liberals have a good media ecosystem? What about a Fox News for the left, folks? (laughs) Yeah, it's been prevalent because it is constantly being tried and is failing. I mean, (laughs) because it sucks. Because when Air America was put on the air, um, it was not as good as Rush Limbaugh's show. (laughs) Rush Limbaugh, more entertaining. Smarter, I'm going to say. Probably smarter than most of the people who are on Air America. Certainly better at his job. But there is, you know, I'm glad you brought up both Limbaugh and Air America because I think there's, you know, so there's a couple obvious problems with this observation Hogg and, and a million other people have made. One is that, you know, there are liberal equivalents to these things, right? I mean, the, this parallel infrastructure he's talking about already exists. There's, you know, there is a whole liberal infrastructure. Also, liberalism is still very much like the dominant force in the culture in a big way. Yeah, Ben Shapiro is creating a daily wire for kids simply to, because <laughs> he's, he's doing this version of that observation yeah, from right, the, the other side. Yeah, speaking of which, the right wing equivalent of this is like you know liberals are winning we need a conservative disney we need yeah we need a disney for the right you know yeah. it's like there's a frozen gap we need <laughs> we need a right-wing version of frozen which incidentally jordan peterson likes frozen i thought frozen makes jordan peterson cry one of the many things that makes him cry interesting <laughs> by the way did you do you remember oh you wouldn't remember but when the beauty and the beast remake came out a few years ago the one with emma watson it was being trumpeted that it was the first disney movie that had an lgbtq character in it what is the did they make the french candle like uh, well i mean implicitly yes but but no it was lefou the character who, who's who's like, lefou he's gaston's sidekick played okay. by josh gad in that movie and the evidence that he was queer was that in the dance scene at the end there was three seconds where he danced with a man uh and that was that was the heroic triumphant first instance of lgbtq representation in a disney movie and and what's sad about it is that really did uh trigger these right-wing people they really are upset about doesn't that that just sum up like the sort of market-driven culture war works whereas like there's this extremely tepid concession made this thing that you would like you could easily miss watching the movie to representation like it's not they're not even really committing to it but then the right is just absolutely incensed about it and then that's like the next five years of politics for them is completely Complaining about Disney. Meanwhile, Disney is funneling money to all the candidates <laughs> to, like, who, are, who, are, DeSantis. Who, are, who are creating these like genocidal bills to like end trans people forever. Just evil, evil shit that is coming straight out of Mickey Mouse's pockets. Yeah, the solution here is just to abolish Disney, by yeah. the way. But anyway, just to turn back to the, the David Hogg tweet. So obviously, problem number one is that this parallel infrastructure he's talking about already exists. Problem number two, though, and I think this is the more serious point to be made here 
You mentioned Air America. You mentioned Rush Limbaugh. There's a pretty obvious qualitative difference between both of these things and their you know, various you know, liberal and conservative equivalents and how they operate. Because I would argue, generally speaking, that you know, the right-wing parallel infrastructure, what's broadly called the conservative movement, and you know, we can put movement in scare quotes because obviously the whole thing is undergirded by like plutocrat money, etc. Because obviously the whole thing is underwritten by plutocrat money, etc., I would argue, notwithstanding all of that, and notwithstanding the fact that, you know, GOP-aligned infrastructure is obviously very obsequious towards, you know, Trump, conservative politicians in general. Having said all that, I do think conservative media has managed to be more independent from the Republican Party, from its kind of daily partisan interests, right? There's a, there's always a feeling on the right that it's the, the people who set the tone and, and kind of control what the quote-unquote respectable, you know, version of conservatism in Congress, what, you know, what they say and, and kind of what, what their daily rhetoric is. The people who set that agenda, you know, it's the MAGA people, it's the chuds, it's the most lizard brain part of the base all the time that is just pulling the Republican Party further and further to the right, devouring whatever came before it, right? The Tea Party wave happened in 2010, and all these guys came in, like, you know, Marco Rubio was part of that. And then a few years later, that's no longer enough. And the party's eating its own, and they're elevating Trump to destroy Rubio and cannibalize the previous version of conservatism that came before. Right-wing infrastructure is particularly good at doing this. Like, of course, the right has gatekeepers as well, right? You know, you had with the National Review, you had the famous never Trump issue where, you know, whatever, 15 contributors all issued these, you know, passionate denunciations of Donald Trump. Like half of them, of course, since have declared their, you know, unwavering fealty to God Emperor Trump. But guess what? All those attempts by, you know, the rights, you know, official kind of their their respectability police, all of that failed. The base won. That's what Trump in 2015 and 2016 represented. He represented the pure unrestrained id of the Republican Party base. He broke through all the guardrails and he succeeded because that's what the right-wing infrastructure is good at. That's what it's for. I can't remember with the name of the congressman, perhaps there were several, who had to go, you know, who rubbed Rush Limbaugh the wrong way, right? They said something Rush Limbaugh didn't like. They said something bad about Rush Limbaugh. And they had to go on his show and, like, kiss his ass and apologize, right? Because that's how powerful Rush Limbaugh is. Can We'd love to see a Democrat do that to Michael Moore. Imagine, imagine Nancy Pelosi, like, going, yeah, going on, like, going to apologize to Michael Moore for some something, right? That would never happen. And this speaks to the real problem with this observation that, you know, uh, you know, as David Hoggs, you know, happened to make here, but I think you're right to refer to it as a public domain observation. Democrats do have this infrastructure, but the point of it, generally speaking, most of the time is not to promote a specific uh, agenda, particular worldview or ideology. At the end of the day, what so much of this stuff is about is just getting people to vote for the Democratic Party. It is, you know, vote blue no matter what kind of stuff. It is much more concerned with disciplining the Democratic base, with disciplining liberal voters, with managing their expectations than it is pursuing a particular agenda, even though, broadly speaking, the sort of me median liberal agenda, I would argue, is more popular and has a lot more popular buy-in than, you know, the agenda that, like, the MAGA chuds are promoting. But, I mean, who can forget, you know, way back in the day, we had, we had an episode way back in the day called Left of the Dial, where we watched this really fascinating documentary about the Air America Project, the ill-fated Air America Project. And I believe it was on the first day of that network, they had Ralph Nader on, so that they could yell at him to the point where he hung up and blame him for George Bush. And then Michael Moore came on and apologized on air to Al Gore for supporting Nader in the previous election. Again, I don't know what the right wing uh, equivalent of, of, of that would be. 
But broadly speaking, I think you can say that there, you know, there is a parallel liberal infrastructure, a democratic aligned media ecosystem, etc. And, you know, I don't want to be too heavy handed here. Obviously, there, you know, there are liberal outlets and stuff where people do good work. There is a kind of an activist space that's broadly speaking affiliated or aligned with the Democratic Party on voting rights, etc. But at the end of the day, when the chips are down, so much of this stuff is about managing the Democratic base. And unlike on the Republican side, it works, which is why Joe Biden is president and not uh, Bernard Sanders of Vermont. The Russian disappeared. Invisible. This thing could park a couple of hundred warheads off Washington and New York. Stolen. He's defecting. The Russians know this, which is why they've been trying to sink him for the past two days. The hunt is on. Now you want us to help you hunt him down and kill him. Battle stations. Give the man a chance. From the director of Die Hard. Torpedo is an acquisition. From the best-selling novel by Tom Clancy. We sail into history. The Hunt for Red October, March 2nd. Well, our movie on this episode is another pick from our superdelegate patron tier. That's right, we have two superdelegate episodes this month because there was a, not unprecedented, another <laughs> tie. And it's becoming ritual that if there's a tie, we honor the tie by watching both movies. I just wanted to pull a George Bush and stop the voting, but we ended up with a dead heat. And rather than doing a kind of Kevin Costner style swing vote, we decided to just, you know, have a perfect bipartisan solution and do both. So we watched Akira last week, and now we're talking talking about The Hunt for Red October, the 1990 blockbuster film adaptation of Tom Clancy's novel, a Jack Ryan novel. This film is directed by John McTiernan, who directed such films as Die Hard and Predator. Not bad. Stars Sean Connery and Alec Baldwin. And uh, I was a little frustrated that this one won because I watched it about a year ago on Netflix and I didn't love it then. Certainly didn't love it now, but... Well, I'm sorry that you got paid to watch it again. Life is so hard. I'm a professional. Okay, I'll watch The Hunt for Red October. But you'll complain about it on mic to the people we're trying to entertain i'm just saying <laughs> folks reach out to me and ask have i seen the movie a year or two ago uh, no no it's fine this is a perfect movie for the podcast i'm surprised we haven't discussed tom clancy before i've never read a tom clancy book i never will read a tom clancy book let's just i feel confident in predicting that i can see no scenario where i will ever read a tom clancy book well i was gonna say this was especially fun for me and i think i enjoyed the, watching the movie a little more than you did um but this was especially fun for me because my entire relationship with the tom clancy universe comes from gaming and so you know i know i know tom clancy because of fictional gaming worlds you know set in countries called like islamistan where you have to <laughs> where you know you're part of a special forces unit that's assisting some, you know, local resistance group of very nebulously defined ideological allegiance. But, you know, you, you they support the cause of freedom in some way. So you're there to help them and you're there to topple the, you know, whatever the bogeyman was that's like somehow simultaneously encoded as the USSR, even though it's the 1990s. It'll always be some like war on terror plot, but then, you know, somehow it's like tied back to the Soviet Union or something. Somehow the, the, the evil Islamists are also like collectivists or something like that. That's how I know Tom Clancy. So it was fun to uh, watch this because it is an adaptation of his first novel, his debut novel, which he sold for $5,000 to a small publisher in the early 1980s and which was, you know, a bestseller, a huge success. Uh, I think he was like an insurance salesman or something like that. So real American success story. Yeah, good for him. I mean, I have no other experience with the Jack Ryan universe. I've never seen any of the other movies. I did see the trailer for the last season of that John Krasinski TV show which it opens in that amazing way where it's John Krasinski is playing CIA analyst Jack Ryan and he's like lecturing to a classroom full of people or something and he says what's the biggest national security threat to America 
America. Some might say it's Russia. Some might say it's a country in the Middle East. But what about Venezuela? <laughs> and then the whole show becomes about like invading Venezuela for the for the American empire. Yeah, I'm glad you brought this up because I, I was going to bring it up if you didn't. But uh, it is so funny that like Office Jim plays the current iteration of the Jack Ryan character who you know makes his film debut is played by Alec Baldwin in The Hunt for Red October. And yeah, it's so funny that Office Jim talked in that 2018 interview about how he nerded out when he got into this CIA role. And he, and he said, you know, people should be saying thank you every day to this organization. Like he just thought the CIA was so fucking cool. What a loser. Anyway, The Hunt for Red October, I will describe the plot of the film. Sean Connery stars as the renegade Soviet submarine captain Ramius, commander of the Red October, a state-of-the-art submarine that cannot be detected by sonar. Finds itself in a very provocative situation. (laughs) (laughs) While at sea, he kills a political officer who has been placed on board. He delivers fake reports about the mission, and then he goes rogue. What is he up to? What is this Soviet officer Ramius up to? You know, this isn't really a criticism of the movie, by the way, but I just but I just love that all like Hollywood movies about uh, either Nazi Germany or the Soviet Union from especially like 30 years ago all have just British guys playing it's, them. It's so weird because they have... Um, Sam Neill is a Soviet guy. They have guy. Sam Neill and Sean Connery like speaking Russian at times times with subtitles and then they just speak english with their normal like accents i remember the tom cruise movie valkyrie opens like tom cruise plays oh we have to watch that for the pod sometime yeah we we should tom cruise plays like a a nazi in that movie and it opens with him speaking in german and then just fades into english language which i kind of respected as an artistic choice where it's just like yes acknowledging up front it's ridiculous that he's speaking english but just go with us (laughs) on it (laughs) so now i i really like this scene where he in this early scene where he he kills this like political officer who's you know the Kremlin's representative aboard the submarine. There's two things that are great about it. The first is that you know the film wants to give us some ideology, right? It wants to show us like this is the enemy that we're fighting. So he's sort of saying, you know, comrade, this boat belongs to the people of the Soviet Union or whatever. And so we're already supposed to resent this because you know, as Tom Clancy heads, as military fanatics, we're watching this. And you're like, God damn it, show this jarhead some respect, folks. You know, support the troops, even if they're Russians. But then the film has to give us some ideology. So then they ha- they put a line in this guy's mouth right before Sean Connery kills him where he says something about how privacy is not a big concern in the Soviet Union comrade sometimes privacy is bad for the collective good or something like that and so you know I can't be offended by this movie one of the reasons I was able to enjoy it is because it's just it's such a it's so right wing it's just such a kind of reductive Cold War narrative like let's just take it as axiomatic just like when you play Call of Duty or something that the politics are dumb as hell and just enjoy yourself and that's what I did yeah couldn't agree more even though I didn't particularly enjoy the movie i think i think the idea of getting offended at the hunt for red october in the year 2022 would be a little much anyway alec baldwin plays jack ryan he's a cia analyst a former marine and he's a family man and he's been called upon to investigate. The U.S. government assumes that Sean Connery and the Red October are planning a nuclear strike, but Jack Ryan is unconvinced. He's studied Ramius. He's even met him once uh, at a packed government meeting. Jack Ryan explains that Ramius is actually Lithuanian by birth. So, you know, he's not he's not a true Russian. And because of his birth, he doesn't have ties to Soviet ideology. Yeah, Jack Ryan sort of figures figures this whole thing out. He's met him at some, you know, 
state dinner in Leningrad that he's somehow attended or something. It's pretty implausible that he would be able to deduce all of this. It's like, oh yeah, he's from Lithuania, ergo he must be defecting. Like that doesn't really make a lot of sense. <laughs> oh, not just that though. He's also a widower and he has no children. So he has no shame to bring upon his family if he does uh, defect. That's right. It, it totally it totally follows just from those two very basic data points that somehow this somehow the CIA has gotten a hold of this clandestine uh, information where which Soviet Republic the guy was born in and also the fact that he's a widower. But so somehow it follows from those two data points that uh, yeah, this distinguished Russian officer who's like one of the, one of the Soviet Union's most distinguished naval uh, commanders would uh, would defect. But the, but this scene is also important because Jack Ryan explains this in this room full of all these generals and admirals and stuff. And of course, they just have, you know, they're not they're not playing 24 dimensional chess like him. So they're just like, "Oh, they must be coming, you know, they're coming to attack us." The, the two possible scenarios are the Red October's out there. There's a whole bunch of, you know, the Soviet Navy, we're tracking them, they're following him underwater. So either the Soviets are attacking us, they're performing exercises, or he's a madman who's coming to nuke us and they're trying to stop him. Those are the possibilities. But Jack Ryan, just on the spot, kind of figures it out. And I think, you know, that gets to kind of what the politics of this movie and kind of Tom Clancy are, which like, of course, Tom Clancy wants to valorize the military, but especially he wants to valorize the CIA and intelligence. Like, this film is kind of an homage to like the American deep state. It's like, okay, you know, we got the military, they're out there, they're protecting us, but there's actually like a higher power than that. And you know, the CIA is its name. You know, They got eyes on the sky. That's right. Know? And I think that's kind of what was on Office Jim's mind as well when he was nerding out about the CIA. His words, not mine. Is there a certain amount of rugged individualism in Tom Clancy as well? I mean, he believes in these institutions, but this is such a distinctly American story of like the, the one lone guy in the institution who can see through everything and really understands and has to get all the conservative thinkers on his side for his radical uh, experiment. Yeah, I mean, I kind of have a theory about him based on just a cursory reading or a theory about him in this film, just based on a kind of cursory reading of his biography. I mean, Tom Clancy, it's worth saying, I mean, he worked at this small insurance agency that was in Maryland that, you know, I think had, was a family business or something. He ended up buying the agency. He was kind of writing novels as like a hobbyist in his spare time. He was actually working at it when he wrote The Hunt for Red October. But he was briefly, he did join the Army Reserve. And then he wasn't allowed to serve because he had nearsightedness. So if you see pictures of Tom Clancy, he often has the, these big thick glasses. So those glasses are kind of like, that was like a permanent like talisman of his inability to actually serve in the military. Now this movie is not uh, primarily a kind of character driven story, but one detail we learn about Jack Ryan is that he was originally in the Marines and then he had some kind of accident that made him not able to serve in the Marines. So he wasn't out there doing the wet work, but guess what folks, this movie is here to tell us he's doing something far more important, which he's, he's the brains of the empire. He He's the, he's the chess player who sits atop all of it. And I, I think, you know, there, there may be a certain kind of wish fulfillment here. No disrespect to the late Mr. Tom Clancy. Well, okay, you've got, you've got the <laughs> army, the navy, the military, and then above that, you've got the CIA. And then above that, you've got novelists. And they're the real eyes <laughs> in the sky. Novelists they're, are the real troops. They're the ones who are actually figuring out, because they, they have the power of narrative. They, they have, have the, the imagination. Of, yeah, they have the power of storytelling on their side. So they understand what the right story is. <laughs> 
anyway, that is my favorite scene of the movie where Jack Ryan is going on. You know, I know Ramius General. He's he's nearly a legend in the submarine community. I liked that line. A legend in the I, submarine I, community. I wrote that down. I love the, the global submarine. They're doing like the global submarine conventions, subcon. <laughs> then there's the midsection of the film. This is where I was kind of falling asleep. Uh, there's another ship in the plot, an American sub called the USS Dallas. It keeps watch of Soviet subs. There's a fair amount of the movie that's uh, various efforts on the part of the sonar technician on the Dallas to track the Red October. Orders are made by U.S. Navy brass to sink the Red October, etc., etc. What ultimately matters is that Jack Ryan convinces the authorities that Ramius may actually be a Soviet defector and to make contact with Ramius to offer assistance. Uh, Jack Ryan has guessed correctly. A rescue sub is dispatched to the Red October. However, the Russians are not giving up without a fight. The Red October is attacked by a Russian ship. We find out that one of the Red October's crew is a secret Russian agent. He opens fire on the crew. And that the agent, by the way, uh, if it's the same one, is is pretty amusingly called Putin, which I think is funny. Interesting. A lot of a lot of foresight on Tom Clancy's part. This is why this is why he's an author and why authors outrank everyone. <laughs> There's a suspenseful climax where the enemy ship blows itself up with its own torpedo. And then the big surprise towards the end, the big the big twist is that Ramius, that's Sean Connery, reveals that he was actually ordered to launch an unprovoked nuclear strike on the United States. Well, he wasn't ordered to, but the the technology, the Typhoon class submarine is like a you know, it's designed for preemptive strikes. It was, and so it was going he, knows, to he knows what they're going to do with it. That's yeah. right. And so he decided, I can't let this happen. I have to, I have to defect right now. So this is what, this is why I love, uh, this is why I love this movie. This is what, <laughs> that's why I thought it was really funny is like Tom Clancy is so pro-military that he has to like, like the heroes of this movie is like the Soviet military high command. Like that's what's so funny. It's like, well, they may be on different sides, but they are brothers of the shield. Well, basically Tom Clancy seems to be so pro-military that instead of you know he could have centered kind of russian dissidents or something like that instead you know the guy who saves the world is just you know the the soviet equivalent of like an american commander or something and throughout the movie there really is this idea that like military guys are they're above politics they have a kind of hard-headed realism that means we can trust them like they're the guardians of order even apparently when they're they're the military for the other side that that's (laughs) like the great satan that we're fighting against there is one other very amusing dose of ideology in the movie, which is as Sean Connery and, and Sam Neill, who's one of his senior officers, possibly his first officer, as they're kind of getting to the point, you know, towards the third act of the movie where they realize they might actually be able to, you know, land in, in New England or something. Sam Neill starts thinking kind of wistfully about like what he's going to be able to do when they get there. And he's like, he's like, where will I live? And Sean Connery's like, oh, they'll probably let you live wherever you want. And he's like, he's like, really? Like they, they do that? And he's like, can you just go from state to state with no papers <laughs> and then he then he starts like he has this whole fantasy where he wants to he's like i'm gonna drive from i'm gonna see montana i'm gonna spend the summer in the north and the winter in the south and i'm just gonna drive from state to state and so you know the it's impl- funny that more americans don't do this you know since they have the freedom why could why could it possibly be that they don't do this that's the movie saying like this is the freedom that this is what's at stake in the cold war is like your ability to drive from like montana to the dakotas without having to show your papers or whatever this is what they're not allowed to do you think you can do that from lithuania ssr if you want to go over to st petersburg for the weekend no folks 
There are a few other casting choices I, I want to note. Just for a little bit more housekeeping, there, there are a few uh, other casting choices I think are funny. Fred Thompson, who's credited as Fred Dalton Thompson, future U.S. senator and notably unsuccessful uh, Republican candidate in, I think, 2008. He makes an appearance. Weirdly, if you're a fan of Star Trek The Next Generation, you will notice there are two little Easter eggs. One is that Gates McFadden, a.k.a. Dr. Beverly Crusher, appears very early in the movie as uh, Jack Ryan's wife and then never appears again. So this could have been a breakthrough role for Gates McFadden, but appara- and they, apparently she filmed a whole bunch of other scenes and they, they just cut them from the movie. So Jack Ryan's wife's not really in the movie except for that one part. And then an even deeper cut, there's an American officer or something who's in the scene with Fred Thompson and appears later who real heads will recognize as the guy who plays Dr. Moriarty in the holodeck version of Sherlock Holmes on Star Trek The Next Generation, who's one of these actors who just has a tremendous amount of gravitas such that he was able to make convincing a holodeck version of Dr. Moriarty on Star Trek The Next Generation. Anyway, I just wanted to mention that. There's no bigger point. Uh, Some fun casting in the movie. I was happy to see James Earl Jones, uh, as always, you know, as the friendly CIA guy. Uh, (laughs) I read the Roger Ebert review of this movie because I'm always looking up Roger Ebert to see sort of what was the mainstream like critical take on a movie like this when it came out and you know he gave it three and a half stars he he admired it very much on a technical level was talking about how all everything worked all the beats worked uh nothing really about the ideology of the film and I don't I don't get the sense that when this movie came out it was really greeted ideologically at all and I just think that's interesting I mean when Jack Ryan stuff comes out now there's all sorts of like ideological discourse on it well you know maybe there's an optimistic reading of that in far as it's, it was true. I mean, Cold War ideology, you could say, was so ubiquitous that people didn't even really detect that as kind of an ideological thing. Although, of course, there is another sense in which the film did have an ideological reception, which was in many ways responsible for Tom Clancy's uh, later career success. You may not know this, but uh, Ronald Reagan actually praised The Hunt for Red October, the novel. And I just want to read here uh, from an article that came out, I think, after Clancy died in 2013. A hat tip from the Gipper made Tom Clancy, who passed away Tuesday at the age of 66, a household name. He kind of became a big deal in Republican circles for a while, author Tevi Troy says of the late fiction writer. Troy has become an authority on presidents and their pop culture thanks to his new book, What Jefferson Read, Ike Watched, and Obama Tweeted. Y'all be picking that up for sure. During the Reagan administration, the Republican president was reluctant to portray himself as a big reader. Even though he had read a wide variety of books, he liked a good adventure story. This is Troy talking. He also liked to read nonfiction, and I know that Clancy book made a bit of a splash. Reagan received The Hunt for Red October as a gift and called Clancy's first published novel, My Kind of Yarn. From there, Clancy made a trip to the White House to meet with Reagan. The guy has a handshake like a lumberjack, Clancy said of the president. <laughs> According to Lou Cannon's book, uh, President Reagan, The Role of, of a Lifetime. Clancy went on to become a best-selling author and a millionaire, leaving behind his former life as an insurance salesman, and many of the books were turned into movies. The Reagan-Clancy connection continued when Reagan was gifted the teddy bear used for the final scene of the hunt for Red October. The bear is not significant to the plot, by the way. I did register it. I'm not sure what the point was. In turn, the president gave the bear to his grandchild, Ken. Cameron. Cameron's father, Michael Reagan, revealed that his family possessed the toy in his book, The New Reagan Revolution. 
You know what I like about this is this is clearly like a sort of right-wing news site. I love the insight into like conservative nerd culture this is giving us where it's like, you you know that bear at the end of A Hunt for Red October? Well, Reagan actually got that as a gift and then he gave it to someone else and now it's in this person's possession. It's like, you know, Reagan really respected Clancy and, you know, the respect was totally requited. I mean, Clancy actually famously said that Reagan had a handshake like a lumberjack and yeah. I believe it. I can't say I'm surprised that uh, Ronald Reagan liked Tom Clancy uh, or even that the respect was mutual anyway tom clancy is passed on but the jack ryan franchise is still strong still vital we saw him go after venezuela the great satan on the last season of his tv well, the, show by the way the great i'm sure on the on the new season it's going to be good because did you hear that because of the oil crisis uh the united states has been uh, reconnecting with uh, the maduro government maybe it'd be fun if the next season was just like a really uh, just a really pleasant season where jack ryan like shakes hands and has a variety of ver- a fairly pleasant closed door but there's a very obvious answer here which is the bad guys will just be russians again obviously right yeah when is uh, jack ryan gonna go to china Hard to give you a timeline for that, but I'd say uh, whenever Russia exhausts itself as kind of the dominant idiom for kind of, you know, America's nemesis du jour and, you know. And whenever Amazon Prime is not hoping to make inroads into the Chinese market anymore because they've been (laughs) shut out, finally China will become the enemy. Remy has trained most of their officer corps, which would put him in a position to select men willing to help him. And he's not Russian. He's Lithuanian by birth, raised by his paternal grandfather, a fisherman. And he has no children. No ties to leave behind. And today is the first anniversary of his wife's death. Oh, come on. You're just an analyst. What can you possibly know what goes on in this mine? I know Ramius, General. He's nearly a legend in the submarine community. Well, I think we've more or less put the movie to bed, although one final point I would make about it is that I think it's part of a longstanding tradition in kind of Cold War culture, Cold War hysteria. It's preoccupied with, you know, all the terrifying technology that, you know, the Soviet Union's going to invent, right? Because don't forget, the catalyst for the whole plot in The Hunt for Red October is this Typhoon-class submarine with something called a Caterpillar Drive, which I don't actually think we said. We said the Caterpillar Drive part before. The Caterpillar Drive, which allows the sub to kind of creep along and not be detected by sonar. So this is what's going to allow uh, the Russians to have this submarine. It's going to disrupt the balance of power by allowing to, them to do a you know a preemptive strike uh, without being detected on the continental United States. Now I was thinking about uh, this theme in Cold War culture, and I actually thought of something uh, that I've been searching for for a while, and I've meant to read out on the show before and couldn't find it. This is, of all things, an article published by Winston Churchill. Yes, that Winston Churchill, published in McLean magazine okay so this was Canada this is Canada's still you know one of Canada's kind of main general interest magazines the date on this uh, reads 1931 uh, which is clearly wrong because there's a reference to nuclear power but so you know probably sometime after the Iron Curtain speech you know before Churchill's death in the early 1960s it's called 50 years hence and Churchill begins can you picture a world in which science can create human robots possessing brawn without brain bookmark that that's gonna be relevant in a second nuclear energy a million times mightier than our present power will be harnessed geography and climate will bow to the will of man engines of 600 horsepower will weigh 20 pounds and carry fuel for a thousand hours in a tank the size of a fountain pen synthetic food will be universally used artificial radiation will do away with the cornfields and potato patches the great mass of human beings absorbed in the toils cares and activities of life are only dimly conscious of the pace at which mankind has begun to travel we look back a hundred years and see that great changes have taken place we look back 50 years and see the speed is constantly quickening. This present century has witnessed an enormous revolution in material things, in scientific appliances, in political institutions, in manners and customs. So there's a ton of throat clearing in this article. It's very long. 
there's a lot of sort of, you know, future predictions that don't really, you know, hold up. There's a whole bunch of stuff we can talk about, but uh, not all of it's relevant to the movie. The part that I remembered is uh, later on in the in the article where there's a subsection called Human Robots, a Possibility. Now, you might think that Churchill is excited about the prospect of human robots, but he's actually very worried about it. He writes, A few years ago, London was surprised by a play called Possum's Universal Robots. The production of such beings may be possible within 50 years. They will not be made, but grown under glass. No idea what that means. No idea what he had in mind there. There seems little doubt that it will be possible to carry out the entire cycle, which now leads to the birth of a child in artificial surroundings. Interference with the mental development of such beings, expert suggestion, and treatment in the early years would produce being specialized to thought or toil. He writes, a being might be produced capable of tending a machine, but without other ambitions. Our minds recoil from such fearful eventualities, and the laws of a Christian civilization will prevent them. But might not lopsided creatures of this type fit in well with the communist doctrines of Russia? Might not the union of Soviet republics, armed with all the power of science, find it in harmony with all their aims to produce a race adapted to mechanical tasks, and with no other idea but to obey the communist state. The present nature of man is tough and resilient. It casts up its sparks of genius in the darkest and most unexpected places. But robots could be made to fit the grisly theories of communism. There is nothing in the philosophy of communists to prevent their creation, and they have no religion. Anyway, so this is a running theme right throughout the Cold War is, is you know, the Russians are developing, they're using the, they're using the powers of collectivism to, you know, develop some terrifying new piece of uh, technology, which is, by, which by the way, is why your friendly neighborhood defense contractor needs even more subsidies from the United States federal government next year, and why we need enough warheads to destroy the entire planet 15 times over. Because the Soviets are developing communist robots, folks. Don't take it from me, this is Winston Churchill speaking. <laughs> Anyway, moving on from the robots, just to include the Churchill thing, there's a section at the end, and it's kind of like the concluding section. It's just called Incompetent Democracy. And I love this because he writes, It is indeed a descent almost to the ridiculous to contemplate the impact of the tremendous and terrifying discoveries which were approaching upon the structure of parliamentary institutions. How can we imagine the whole mass of the people being capable of deciding by votes at elections upon the right course to adopt amid these cataclysmic changes? Even now, the parliaments of every country have shown themselves quite inadequate to deal with the economic problems which dominate the affairs of every nation of the world. Before these problems, the claptrap of the hustings and the stunts of newspapers wither and vanish away. I'm sorry you lost the 1945 election, bro. Democracy as a guide or motive to progress has long been known to be incompetent. None of the legislative assemblies of the great modern states represents in universal suffrage even a fraction of the strength or wisdom of the community. Great nations are no longer led by their ablest men or by those who know most about their immediate affairs or even by those who have a coherent doctrine. Democratic governments drift along the latest line of resistance, taking short views, paving their way with sops and doles, and smoothing their paths with pleasant-sounding platitudes. Never was there less continuity or design in their affairs, and yet towards them are coming swiftly changes which will revolutionize for good or ill not only the economic structures of the world, but the social habits and moral outlook of every family." 
Only the communists have a plan and a gospel. It is a plan fatal to personal freedom and a gospel founded upon hate. Anyway, I wanted to conclude with this because even though Churchill has moved on from robots, he's getting here to one of kind of the one of the other big themes of Cold War reaction, which is freedom and democracy are important. That's what we're fighting for, but also they're bad, and we have to go beyond them in order to save them from tyranny. And in that spirit, I hope uh, we do some more Tom Clancy stuff on the podcast because I think in Tom Clancy we get the most reductive and adolescent version of this imaginable, and I found it tremendously fun. <laughs> <laughs>